that there are many different ways to structure an investment and to avoid risk. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reed Goosens here, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to U.S. real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the U.S. market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing the cream of the crop of successful real estate entrepreneurs and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the U.S., If you're new to the show, then welcome. I know you'll get a lot of cracking information and actionable steps to start successfully investing in the US or help move your business to the next level. If you're a returning listener, then you already know you're in the right place. You're all a bunch of legends as you're continuing to take action steps to better your future and learn from our inspirational guests. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. today's show, we are diving into the world of real estate financing and really getting into the nuts and bolts of understanding debt and equity financing in a capital stack and how that may impact you as an investor and how you can use it to mitigate risks against volatility in the market. The expert in the hot seat is Dimitri Chabotariv. G'day, Dimitri. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Reid. Thanks for having me. Dimitri is a commercial property developer and asset manager based here in Southern California with experience in acquiring assets in Las Vegas, Nevada. He serves both as the president of his own firm, which is Oxford Investment Partners, and a chief business development officer for Cambridge Properties, with his primary role being overseeing investor relationships, driving business development, and guiding company direction. Dimitri is originally from Russia, but moved to the US as a kid in 1993. So that being said, Dimitri, do you want to give the listeners a little bit more in-depth look at your background and really what motivated you to start real estate investing and eventually go on to start your own firm? Yeah, absolutely. So I got into I got into real estate back in 2008, 2009. I kind of fell into it. When I, when I first started in the workforce, I was going to school. I was changing my major many times, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And at the end of it all, after changing my major from business administration, business economics, history, psychology, you name it, I got to the place where I saw that it wasn't for me. It wasn't something that I was passionate about at the time. And I started working in real estate because my family was in real estate. And I went to Vegas. I started doing market analysis, data analysis. And during that time, 2008, 2009, the whole market was crashing. And we were seeing a lot of different developers, different funds really going bankrupt. And I saw an opportunity to to structure a deal to buy out a developer's portfolio at 10 cents on the dollar. And it really put me in a good position at the company that I was with, working with my family, working with, um, working with my mentor, Michael Bash. 
and it, it got me into the the finance side of things. And I started doing my own research and really learning learning on my own about finance, about the capital stack, about different ways of structuring deals, different sustainable methods in real estate and how to really create wealth without risking principal investment. Fantastic. So you went to university, just to recap, you went to university, the typical run-of-the-mill courses just weren't for you and you sort of fell a little bit backwards into real estate by the sounds of it and now it's taking you to all the way to this point where you've you know, you started your own firm. You're the chief uh, development officer of another firm. That's that's incredible stuff. Like that's a truly incredible story. I love I love hearing that sort of stuff. And it's all by chance. I, I take it, or was it a little bit more you know methodical because your family was already in real, real estate? Well, you know, it started by chance because when I was when I was in my early twenties or you know late teens, early twenties, I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I was just kind of getting into getting into real estate. Because, you know, I needed a job. Right, right, right. <laughs> but but as, I, as I learned more about real estate and as I started getting good at what I was doing, I saw that it gave me the flexibility to learn on my own, mm-hmm. to structure deals, and to really nobody, – nobody was my boss. Even right. though I, I – at that point, I was not, you know, the president of my own company or a partner in a company because as chief business development officer, I'm actually a managing – partner right. in that company, Cambridge companies. But it gave me the opportunity to get there very quickly. And then it became directed. Then I started, I, I found direction in my own life and I started learning and I, I stay up all night long reading into, reading into different tools that would help me in my everyday practices, how to, how to work with investors, how to structure deals, acquisitions of, of uh, retail centers, multifamily, mm-hmm. various aspects of commercial real estate. And, you know, it, it took off from there. Fantastic. And I, it's surprising how many entrepreneurs I get on the show because we've all got that same sort of uh, inner sort of feeling, which is, you know, I know personally I don't I don't like it when I'm, I'm working for someone else and I don't like the structure or uh, of that particular company or, or, or what it is. But when you give me give me my own resources and, I, and I'm working for myself, then you know the world is endless to, to, to me and, all, and the opportunities that I can create because it's it's on me, right? You know I, I'm the one who has to create those opportunities. Otherwise, I don't get paid. <laughs> and I'm sure, oh, yeah. like, like with any like yourself, it's sort of it's daunting to, to go out on your, on your own, but in saying that it's so liberating because you can take control of your future, so, so to speak. And that happens to be in real estate investing, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dimitri, just before we dive into the nuts and bolts of it, do you want to give us, do you want to tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing? Unrelated to real estate investing? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess there's, there's plenty of things. <laughs> I'm a musician. I oh, yeah. play guitar. Oh, Fantastic. In addition to that, I also conduct research. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm passionate about research, and um, I work with I work with a group at a local college, and we're studying the convergent evolution of the placenta, which is is fascinating. I I like to invest aside from my investments for financial gain. Mm-hmm. I like to invest in different ventures, for example, research ventures 
that can really help you know, all of us with the knowledge that we gain. Charity, of course. I participate with the Shriners, mm-hmm. Shriners Hospitals. Right. I, I tend to stay pretty active, so I participate in a lot of different ventures. Okay. That's, that's incredible. That's great. And, 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 we, <laughs> and it's all to do – the research is all to do with sort of medical – the medical field, I take it? Uh, biology, primarily. Biology. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, listeners, as already mentioned, today's show is all about understanding debt versus equity in a capital stack and how that impacts you as a real estate investor and how that influences the real estate deal in, in the way that is structured. So, Dimitri, most real estate transactions will include a debt portion and an equity portion, but can we just you know, rewind back to the beginning and walk the listeners through the basic definition of just what a capital stack is and the role that which both debt and equity play within that capital stack? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think of a capital stack like a pyramid, mm-hmm. you have up on top of the pyramid, you have your equity, and that's sponsor equity, preferred equity. Mm-hmm. I, I can I, I generally clump those two into one because equity is really just equity. Right. Prefer the, the difference between equities is if you have a preferred equity position, you are going to get paid first a certain percentage, let's say eight percent, mm-hmm. before anyone else gets paid. Right. Then in the middle of the pyramid, there's mezzanine financing, which is a hybrid debt and equity, Mm -hmm. uh, which means, let's say, 50-50 or 70-30, so 70% debt, 30% equity, Mm -hmm. or 50% debt, 50% equity. It's just a hybrid. And then on the bottom of the pyramid, there's the debt. Generally, your your standard type of loans, um, hard money, bank loans, you name it. Right. Financial sort of. Uh, financial inst- institutional money, correct? Exactly, institutional yeah. money. Right, right. And so you just alluded to a little bit there, pref equity and you know equity's own skin in the game. And I take the reason that you use the analogy of a pyramid is because that position in where you are in that pyramid means that you, it also a measure of risk, correct? So the, the higher up the, the pyramid you are, the, the more at risk your capital could potentially be against a potential deal. Do I have that correct? So if you're at the bottom of the pyramid, you're typically in first position or, you know, it's the debt portion. And then you'll, you'll move into subordinate, uh, which is what you sort of talked about in mezzanine. And then it mm-hmm. goes preferred. And then, you know, your own skin in the game if, if, if you have any skin in the game. So do you want to talk about the risk as you move up the pyramid? What you're referring to when it comes to risk moving up the pyramid, whereas equity, it, what you're referring to is equity being the highest risk, debt being the lowest risk mm-hmm. when it comes to an investor putting their investment into a project. Correct. That generally changes based on the structure of a project. So in a standard project, uh, let's say you're buying a multifamily complex mm-hmm. and you're getting it 70% debt financed, 30% equity, which is a standard structure. Yep. In that case the debt position holds the least risk and the equity position holds the most risk. Right. And the reason, the reason being is if you, let's say I put in 30% equity and you put in 70% debt, you're, you're giving me a loan. If I can't make my payments to you on that debt, mm-hmm. you can foreclose on me and then you will take my asset and now you hold my asset. Right. So that's why the debt is in the least risk position. And you're making the least return on your money based on the fact that you know, you're, you're just loaning your money based on an interest rate, essentially. Right, 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 right. So just to be clear, 
the capital of the capital stack is defined by the level of risk that can either be in the form of debt or equity. And on the debt side, an investor will look to you know borrow potentially a portion of the debt and, and pay interest on that money. And that money is in the lowest risk category in the stack, i.e. in first position. And then as you sort of alluded to on the equity side, the investor will either bring all the money or the funds to the table uh, as a down payment to show skin in the game, or they may look to offer an ownership stake to a third-party investor to mm-hmm. bring that down payment, and, and that money will have a higher rate of return because the risk is higher, you know, potentially in second or third position. Have I got that correct? Uh, yes. So that would be like a private partnership. There's mm-hmm. also there's also syndications where people pool lots of investors together into into a fund. It's very highly regulated with the SEC, but there's another there's another type of structure where that standard capital stack structure doesn't really apply, and the equity position actually isn't the highest risk. And I think that it when when people think of an investment generally, they look at this capital stack and they think, well, debt is absolutely necessary to use. But if you don't use that debt, if you use more equity, the more equity you use in, in your debt-equity ratio, so let's say you have 70% equity and 30% debt, in that position, the equity is actually a very low risk compared to a 30% equity, 70% debt, if that right. makes sense. Right, right, right. And is that got a particular name or is that just the way you could you know, structure a deal potentially? That's just creative financing. <laughs> so there, there are many different ways, and I've learned over the years that there are many different ways to structure an investment and to avoid risk. Right. And it really depends on the type of deal. If you're doing, if you're doing a construction deal, mm-hmm. there's really no getting away from construction debt. You, you're going to need to take out a construction loan to do the actual ground-up construction, mm-hmm. and then you refinance that construction loan into a standard loan afterwards, and there's no, there's no avoiding that. Right. But if you're, if you're buying an existing asset, then a lot of the time it can be very preferential to do 100% equity and avoid the risk to principal altogether. Right. And at that point, if you if you think about what that really implies, the equity becomes just as safe as the debt in the standard model. Got it. Got it. And, and so I, this sort of segues into my next question. And, and what are the type of investors that look for these different positions in the capital stack? If say if you are going and getting a conventional debt versus equity, you know, 70 cent debt, 30% equity. Who looks for a subordinate position on the debt side? I, I thought all banks wanted to be in first position, if, if that's the case that in terms of how you're structuring that particular deal. So a lot of deals, when it comes to debt, a lot of deals don't qualify for bank financing all of the time. Okay. So a lot of times you'll have to go to different sources. For example, you know, I'm a commercial guy, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of people in the residential space and I have a lot of friends who are residential developers. When you're doing things like a fix and flip, which mm-hmm. is a standard kind of getting into real estate, starting out in it, when you're doing a fix and flip, a lot of the times you can't get bank financing. And so you're, you, you become reliant on people like private lenders, hard money lenders, who are taking different positions. 
Sometimes you may even need to use two different lenders, maybe get some bridge financing depending on the type of deal. And there are different interest rates. So now, nowadays, I believe hard money goes for somewhere between what nine and fourteen percent. Yep, yep. There's a couple and of points down. Exactly, and then you could probably get private lending if you if you have some some good relationships established for between five and nine percent. Mm-hmm. And then if you if you have a commercial type of deal or if you're buying a primary residence, then you can go after the bank financing which is about 4% interest rate. Okay. So it really depends on the type of deal that you're getting involved in, whether it be, you know, you said a fix and flip deal might be a little bit more high risk. So people aren't as more forthcoming or well, conventional lending is not as forthcoming to, to help you get through that flip because you'll need to buy the deal. You'll then need to get the construction loan and then you'll have an, uh, you know, an after repair value. Or conversely, you get into a commercial deal, which you know debt is t- typically um, more readily available in the institutional side because it has a lot more, it has a lot less risk of defaulting on the, the money than, than say in a single family fix and flip project. Correct? Exactly. The, f- the fix and flips, because the way that I look at it is, is like this, and I, I think that maybe this will help people visualize the difference between residential and commercial. Mm-hmm. When you look at a single family home and you're doing a fix and flip. You buy the home, you do the fix and flip, you do the fix, and then you flip it, you sell it. So the goal is to get out as soon as possible and then make your returns. The real question comes when you think of a worst-case scenario. Let's say there's a crash somewhere in between the time that you started the flip Mm -hmm. and you are actually going to flip it. Let's say there's a 25% decline in the market. At that point, you're not really going to be able to you're not going to be able to sell that asset off. And so your only choices are to either default and lose the asset, Mm -hmm. which means that you didn't do what you said to your investors or your debtors you were going to do, or you try to rent it out. And renting out a single family home a lot of times can be difficult, especially at the price that you want. Right. Now, conversely... To cover the debt, you mean. Yeah, exactly. To cover cover the debt payments and to, to essentially make somewhat of a profit or even just cover your payments entirely. Yeah, break even. Sort of thing. Break even, exactly. Now, with, with commercial, it's different. So when I buy a, a retail center, let's say I buy a retail center that's 70 or 80% occupied, and the plan is to renovate, fill in vacancies, raise the rents, and then sell it, mm-hmm. which is a, a standard model. And halfway through that, there's a 25% decline in the market. Well, we're not going to be able to sell that asset for the price that we hoped to in that particular case. However, we're still already receiving cash flow that covers the debt payments. Yep. And then it becomes a, a matter of filling in the vacancies to try to maximize our return so you can weather the storm and then eventually sell at a pretty decent return on investment. So the the risk profile on commercial and residential it's it's night and day. And it's because there are more there are more tenants essentially. Right. And I, I had ex- explained on the show back uh, I think episode number 3 when I was talking to my one of my business partners Frank just about how in a fix and flip model you're banking on the fact that someone will pay you more money for what you put into the deal, and as you said, that's very <laughs> that's very 
high risk because, as you said, the market may drop tomorrow uh, like it did back in 2008, 2009, and, and you're now – the money that you have in the deal is more than what the deal's actually worth, and so you're underwater, uh, and the banks don't like that. However, yeah. conversely, on the commercial side, which is, you know, in, if you're talking about multifamilies, it's five units or more, the mm-hmm. risk that, you know, and, and so going back to single families, if you were buying for cash flow on, you know, because there's a, there's a lot of places out there, let's be honest, in the Midwest that you can buy a single family property and you can cash flow quite nicely. But the risk that that particular tenant might leave, and so you have 100% vacancy and you can't pay, you can't cover the debt, you know, portion is a lot greater than if you had a 30, 40, 50 unit property not all the tenants are going to leave, right, at once. So mm-hmm. if, if, say, five tenants or ten tenants got up and, and left on a 50-unit property, you still have 40 units that can cover the debt, you know, and, and cover your expenses, and you can sort of weather the, the storm if, you know, as the market fluctuates. You know, I've got that sort of correct, right? Exactly. And that's not to say that residential investing is bad in any way. Right. It's just it's different, and it has it has risks that need to be that need to be looked at and taken – into account. Right, 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 right. So with that being said, Dimitri, this brings me into you know, a segue, and you already mentioned it a little bit before. You know, We always look as investors to maximize the leverage opportunities and borrow the debt portion of the capital stack from, you know, I, I do at least, and, and, and most people out there, from a financial institution. Uh, mm-hmm. you might, and you might then go on, in on a commercial deal. You might go raise um, some, some equity from, some, from a third party if you don't want to bring money to the, to the table, and that's sort of what syndication is. But how do you like to structure your deals? I know we spoke uh, a little bit offline uh, a couple of days ago, and I was very interested to hear how you structured your deals in a way that helps mitigate against risk, as we've just been talking about, and, and avoids you know getting hit by market fluctuations. Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny that you bring up that you know, most people look to uh, maximize the debt. That's true. Most people do look to maximize the debt, and... Uh, my company does things differently. Mm-hmm. So based on, based on our experience and so, so let me, let me step back so I can explain the, the beginnings of this investment strategy and then work my way into the investment strategy. The president of Cambridge companies who I look up to, and he's taught me, he's taught me so much from his experience started Cambridge in 1963. It's, He's been around a long time. He's done, he's done various different types of investments across the United States. And he started in New York, went to California, Texas, Nevada, obviously. And, I mean, he's, he's weathered many different crashes in, in the 70s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. And the one, the one thing that has kept his portfolio intact is that he always has more equity than debt in the ratio of his portfolio. And so the way that we structure our investments based on that system in today's market, we structure our investments in a 100% equity system. Now, what we've noticed, interestingly enough, and it, it doesn't really make sense when you think of it from a, from a standard when it, from a standard point of view, but if you really look at the finance, if you look at the numbers and avoid the emotion of the of different deals and what is yeah, the norm, when you look at the numbers behind it, the IRR, which is the annualized return that that we all look for when we're making our investments, 
the IRR for a 70% debt, 30% equity project compared to a 100% equity project, all cash, is actually the, the difference between those two investments is maybe a 4 to 5% IRR, annualized return difference. And so uh, essentially, you can, you can go and buy a retail center or a multifamily building, and if you buy it all cash, you're making maybe 4 or 5% less than if you bought it with a 70-30. Now, let's look at what that 4 or 5% means. If you're buying here in California in an inflated market and you're buying at a 3 cap, 3% cap rate, then you're going to be, of course, you want that 4 or 5% because 3 cap means you're not even beating inflation. Whereas if you're investing out of state in most parts of the country, let's say Texas, Nevada, the Midwest, Tennessee, there are plenty, there are plenty of markets that are, are still providing excellent returns, you can purchase at a 7 or an 8 cap, at which point you're beating your inflation just based on the cash flow. And then any sort of value add that you can do on that asset turns into additional returns. And so you can make between 15 and 25% IRR very easily in a full equity structure without taking any risk to your principal investment, whereas you can maybe make 20 to 30% IRR using debt, but then if anything goes wrong, you have lost your asset and you lose all of your 30% equity. Right. Okay. That's that's really, really, really interesting. I like that structure. And you, you explained a lot about how the difference, if you look at the numbers between an IRR, if you go and get conventional financing, is, is 4 to 5%. And that's incredible, I guess, to weather storms as we go in and out of you know, fluctuations. As you said, your mentor, your, your boss is, is more, uh, is, you know, it's not his first rodeo. So he's understood, he's looked, he's seen this over a period of time and said, this is probably the best strategy moving forward to, to as you said, keep the capital of your investors whole, not, you know, because that, that's what you, you want to preserve that capital. That's, the, that's your key underlying business methodology or business principles. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, are you acting like the bank, so to speak? Any of your investors don't need to qualify because you're bringing 100% equity to the, to the, to the table, correct? So uh, an international investor, for example, you know, when they don't have credit in this country, could come to you and, and, and you know, bring their money to the table as, a, you know, as an investment I know you mentioned that you bring 50% of your own capital to the table. Is that, is that right? What, what, what's the sort of split there that you try and look for third-party investors and bring your own capital on, on, a, on a deal-by-deal scenario? Yeah, so all of our investments that, that we do are essentially our own investments. And so the way that we structure our deals is we put in 50% of our own money into the deal in cash, and that's in Cambridge companies, there are four partners and we all put in a portion of the, the money for that. And then we look for partners for the other 50%. So there, at that point, there are different ways to structure the deal because – so our, our deals are all private partnerships. So we do have to work with the SEC and, and different SEC regulations, but it's very relaxed because we're not – we're not syndicating. We're not raising from a large group of people into a single investment. 
So our company has a lot of investors. We've worked with over 600 individuals just in this last cycle. Mm-hmm. But we're not raising 10 or 15 different investors into a single deal. It's more private partnerships where we'll put in 50% and then two or three other people will come into a deal and do the other 50%. And so that would mean that if, if you know, because I get a lot of questions from international investors, they, they say to, you know, they say to me, Reed, you know, I, I don't, I'm not based in the United States. I don't have credit. This way, this structuring that you do, 50-50, you don't need any convention. No one has to qualify for anything because you're underwriting a deal. It's your deal that you found. You know you have confidence in the deal because you're putting 50% of your own money or 50% of the deal of your own money into it, and then you look to raise additional capital. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. And when it comes to qualifying for those deals, when, when you're – let's say you're a Chinese investor and we, we work with plenty of Chinese investors – if you're if you're investing out of Hong Kong, you can freely invest. If you're investing out of the United Arab Emirates, you can freely invest. There are only certain places in the world where they're just the borders are closed. For example, mainland China. Right, right, got it. So I didn't we didn't really touch too much yet on on why you're closing the type of deals you're closing on in, in Vegas. And, and do you want to walk us through a typical deal that you is on your desk right now in terms of returns, in terms of what it is, the, the, the investment strategy, the exit strategies, and, and, and all the stuff in between. Yeah, absolutely. When it, when it comes to what we've done in Vegas, we've been in Vegas for 20 years. We're, we're working on various different models. And what we're working on right now is we've been buying retail centers. We like Class A assets because they're in nice areas. I'll just I'll run you through the deal we're working on right now. So... We're working on a deal near Summerlin, which is, which is the nicest part of Vegas for anyone who, who isn't familiar with Vegas. The deal itself is a 7.36 cap acquisition. So that's, that's the cap rate that we're acquiring the asset at. And after renovation, we can, we can increase that to a 10.2 cap, which it's a significant increase. And the way that we can do that is because there are three there are three value add principles that we follow. The center right now is eighty nine percent occupied, so there's there's room for growth already. But there are two tenants in the seven tenant deal that are very under market in terms of their rent rates that they pay, and their leases are about to run out. So we're going to we're going to replace those tenants with tenants who are going to pay closer to the market rate. We're going to renovate the center to make it very appealing for tenants. We're going to go to our established relationships to get these uh, leases put in place. And, of course, negotiate triple net leases, favorable leases for the center. And then once we've raised the rates to market, we sell the asset. And we can sell it at, on a conservative side, 7%. Uh, we we may even be able to sell it as as low as 6.5. So kind of running through that quickly, we're buying at a 7.36. We're raising uh, through through value add. We're raising it to a 10.2, and then we're selling it at a 7%, which means that we can make over 60% return on our investment in a three year time period. Which means we're breaking 20% IRR annualized return each year easily. Exactly. And that's with your that's with a hundred percent equity, no debt. There's no institutional 
you know, lend a breathing down your neck, correct? Exactly. We're not tying a noose around our neck. We're 100% equity. If the market tanks anywhere throughout this process, our worst case scenario is we're making 7% on our money through a crash time where everybody else is losing their principal investment. That's why I like equity. (laughs) (laughs) But I love what you just touched on and and I do this in my business uh, with multifamilies, but it's it's repositioning essentially. You're buying an asset, whether it be multifamilies or a retail center or or something else. It might be even even industrial, where you know that the tenants are paying under market value. It, the, the property itself may need a little facelift because you know, let's face it, buildings age and, and, tenant, and, and existing owners can get slack. And through that identification of certain key aspects you're increasing the net operating income. You might also be able to reduce expenses through you know, billing back the tenants, getting the tenants pay for the expenses. That is all increasing your NOI, net operating income, for anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't know what that is out there. And, and, and you know, financing 101 is that value of a property is equal to NOI divided by cap rate. So if you're increasing that NOI, you're increasing the value. And, and I, you know, I typically I'd use for every dollar you increase... Uh, decrease or increase, if you decrease the expenses or increase the rents, essentially you're increasing the NOI, you increase the value of the property $10 if it's a 10 cap. And that all is so powerful when you want to create long-term wealth. And and I love those types of opportunities because you already know that if, if the market does tank, you've got to, you, you already know in your underwriting, Okay, what's the worst case scenario? We we don't get our you know premium rents. We we can't implement the the renovations straight away. So you know in the back of your mind that well the worst case scenario is as we hold it and, and ride the cycle out whilst the tenants are still pl- paying uh, rent, and, and then once the market we, we get out of our market cycle, we you can then sell it off. So so I'm assuming there's a couple of exit scenarios that you guys take into consideration when you're looking at these types of things. Of course. You got pretty deep into cap rate theory. I hope we didn't alienate some people there. <laughs> I, I, t- I talk about it. I talk about it a lot in, in other episodes, but it's, okay, it's, good. It's, it's the principle of why I like commercial real estate in general compared to residential and, and because you can increase that NOI. Agreed. So, Agreed. Yeah. And, and so, Dimitri, just one last thing. I know I get a, I field a few questions, and, and why I, I tend to lean towards multifamilies a little bit is that people always need a place to live. So uh-huh. even in recessions, people still need to rent a property, and you know people still need a roof over their heads. How does that affect it? How how are you affected with retail when you know people may go out of business? You know, a retail space. You know, a, a hungry jacks or a you know a, lawn, a coin laundry or, or something else that you might be renting. It might be a tenant of yours. How do you keep them in that position or in that store paying rent through a, a bad time? So I'm going to answer that question in a in a kind of multifamily versus retail <laughs> type of. <laughs> so multifamily, I love multifamily. I think it's great because you're right. People need a place to live always. Yep. The difference in the current cycle between multifamily and retail, in my opinion, based on what I see, based on my analysis of the market is multifamily is a, is a, it's an easier space to get into because right. again, everybody needs a place to live. And so it's, e- it's an easier acquisition criteria that you look for, for multifamily. Got it. You know, how, how many completely vacant apartment complexes have you seen? 
Right, exactly. Not, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas retail centers, I can name many that are 100% vacant. Right, right. The difference between acquisitions, which is essential in real estate. In, in real estate, it's all location, location, location. And what what isn't said in that is, well, what are you buying in that location? <laughs> <laughs> with with retail, it's interesting because there are, there's less competition than the multifamily uh, market in terms of acquisition. And you need to know where to buy. So the reason we like class A assets like this one near Summerlin is because the tenants that we're working with, we know that the surrounding area is either high net worth individuals or, or middle class people who they are either in apartments or in homes. They're, they have excess income that they're going to spend on shopping, on buying food, going out to dinner. The, the different demographics are essential, which is why, I mean, I like the Vegas market because it's a major metropolitan area. I tend to avoid, personally, I tend to avoid uh, sub-markets that are not as densely populated because your risk increases significantly when you do that. Yep. Not to say you can't make money doing that, but it, it's huge risk. It's really all about understanding how to acquire an asset and finding the right tenant mix, looking at your existing relationships and knowing, okay, I have a 1,300 square foot space available. I know that I can talk to my friend who, or, or a leasing broker that I know who I've worked with in the past or who I've had friends who've worked with who could lease that space up. Right. Or I have a 5,000 square foot place. I can put in a nail salon in there because I've worked with nail salons and in the centers that I've worked with, we've had a nail salon come into every single one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, or yep. Starbucks, Chase, different high profile tenants. It, it's really a matter of understanding how to, and we could talk about this all day. So I'm going to try to keep it very brief. <laughs> understanding your tenant mix, getting a good tenant mix into a center and the, the more high-profile tenants you have, everybody goes to Starbucks. Everybody banks with Chase, or a lot of people bank with Chase and need to go to the Chase to do their banking. Those types of tenants act as what I like to call, and I don't think anyone else calls them this, small anchors. Right, right. Because people need to go to Starbucks to go grab their, to grab their you know, non-fat mocha latte in the morning. <laughs> And people need to go pull out money from the ATM at the chase. So those types of tenants bring business to a retail center. And then when people are there banking at chase, they say, oh, you know, I want to go to that hookah lounge over there. And maybe tonight I'll take my family or not my family, I suppose, but eh, maybe my family, <laughs> depending on who your family is. <laughs> so that it's. When it comes to retail, it's a different it's a different animal for multifamily. Yep. But the opportunity in the current market is greater than multifamily if you know what you're doing. Right. But if you don't know what you're doing, then it it can be huge detriment to your portfolio because again, as you probably know and as everybody most likely knows, with the internet coming out, big anchor stores going out of business. Yep. You really need to 
do a lot of research getting into the retail space or work with people who have done this a lot and you can do partnerships, right. which is which is what you do, which is what I do. We're all doing partnerships. Right, right. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head then, and that was in retail, uh, un, you know, like in, in multifamilies or even in single families, you screen your tenants, right? You know, I, I'm used to screening my tenants, making sure they have good credit, they can pay the rent. In retail, you also then got to take it to another level of understanding what, as you said, uh, sort of anchor stores, your, your Chases, your Starbucks, knowing that uh, a bank in, in, a, in a retail center is always going to pay rent, and, and even through tough times, you're probably not going to lose them, where a mum-and-pop shop type of uh, pizzeria or something may struggle a little bit more. So you've got to take that all into consideration and, mm-hmm. and understand the type of tenants you're putting into those spaces because that will essentially be uh, is proportionate to the risk, right? Exactly, exactly. And then the, the mum-and-pop stores, unfortunately tend to pay more than the Chase's and the Starbucks because they are a higher risk. And that's just the way that things are, unfortunately, again. Yep. But you're, when, you're, when you're looking at a really good center, the rates that you are putting in place for your contracts mm-hmm. need to be beneficial for both the, the developer or the asset manager and for the tenants in place because if you put in too high of a rate and it's unsustainable for a business let's say a pizza shop if they can't pay their rents because they're not getting enough business they're going to leave and so a lot of times depending on where you are in the market cycle depending on where you are in terms of your region that you're acquiring in it's not always beneficial to try to get the highest possible dollar amount, let's say the market rates are going at $2.50 per square foot. If you can get a stable tenant in there at $2.20, get them in there quickly, you know that they're going to be able to pay their rent. It can be very beneficial to raise the rents by, you know, from $2 to $2.30 as opposed to $2.50, stabilize that center and get it off of your books because you're going to make a good return. And it's, in my eyes, it's kind of you're you're getting the asset taken care of, you're stabilizing it, but you're not being too greedy, and so you're able to make, you know, nobody's complaining with a twenty percent IRR. Right, right, no, exactly, exactly right. No one is complaining with a twenty percent IRR. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dimitri, looking forward, what are you doing to build on your business and grow as a real estate entrepreneur here in the United States? So we've been we've been working with a lot of high net worth individuals, growing our investor base. We've been acquiring more and more retail centers, uh, land subdivisions. We're working. You mentioned industrial earlier. I love industrial, especially in Vegas right now. Right. Okay. We've formed a lot of strategic partnerships with single family offices. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's a smaller institution. Families put in their money into a single institution and then invest in various opportunities. And then we also, we've also been establishing relationships with the larger institutions. Like we've had talks with Fortress. We've had talks with Oak Tree. And wow, that's great. The, these types of relationships, it's a long talk because when you're, when you're trying to establish a relationship with a, with a large institutional fund like Oak Tree or Fortress, they, they may offer you – 
50 to $100 million, but the terms of that, that money may not be beneficial for either you or your investors right. that you're working with. Right. So we're, we're right now working on sustainable investments. We're working on sustainable acquisitions and we're, we're doing what we've been doing because it's slow and steady wins the race. We would rather acquire smaller deals around four or 5 million than jump into a $50 million deal and the IRR not be anywhere near as high. And at the end of the day, I would rather do 10 deals at 5 million than one deal at 50 million. If the, IRR that I end up with is higher on those 10 deals right? because with the infrastructure in place, or if, even if you don't have the infrastructure in place, you can establish that infrastructure and you build up your company that way. And that's how we've had sustainable growth for a long time by following that model. Right. Right. And I guess it also helps diversify the risk. If you've got $50 million in one asset, then, you know, spreading that over 10 assets, it's going to be more risk averse, right? Of course. And then it, when you get to a $50 million deal, it's a lot harder to do a 100% equity project. So at that point, we would, yeah. we would be talking about maybe a 50% equity, 50% debt. And then, of course, the risk is increased by that debt additionally. So, Dimitri, with that being said, you've got so much experience in the commercial real estate industry here in the United States. I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Staying organized, making sure that throughout the day, you know exactly what you need to do. You know exactly what you need to, who you need to talk to, what follow-ups you need to send. Um, Nowadays we have cell phones. And so putting, putting, Meetings and dates into your calendar is crucial. Yep, love it. I'm being organized is hugely important to a real estate investing firm. I Make, think to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, any business, any uh, entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, what's the most influential tool you use in your real estate business, and why? Influential tool. So I, I use many tools. I'd say uh, I like to use. I, I don't know if this can be considered a tool, but. My finance team and the team that I've established has been crucial for market analysis, for deal analysis. And I guess when, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're looking at the, the people who are working with you and for you, the, the tools that you use sometimes, sometimes are your partnerships. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. No, 100%. We talk a lot about on here about developing an A-team and that's, that's actually a really good answer because you're developing a good team around you is a tool. It helps you uh, take your business to the next level. You get to delegate and not have to take on so much responsibility. And the more heads, you know, the smarter minds working together on one project, the better it becomes, the quicker you get the job done, the more efficient you are. Uh, there's, there's a quote I saw or a meme I saw uh, on entrepreneur.com, which was, you know, hire good people, then step back and let them do their job. <laughs> so Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's not to say that I, I look at my finance team in case they're listening. You guys aren't tools. <laughs> very, very smart guys. I, we're, we're very close friends. <laughs> not, not, not tools in the derogatory sense, but tools yeah. in terms of 
benefiting your business and, and, and creating that long-term wealth. Exactly. So, so what's, who's the most influential person in your career? I think you might have already mentioned him, but it might be someone else. The, the most influential person in my career has been my wife because without my wife, I don't know how I would do anything on the day-to-day. But in terms, in terms of my learning about real estate, seeing massive experience, it would have to be Michael Bash, who's the president of Cambridge Companies, because I've learned just huge amounts from him. And we've, we've sat down and had conversations for hours until he was saying, get out of my house, stop <laughs> asking me questions. But there, there are so many people. I like to surround myself with, with people who are motivated, people who want to achieve things. And so everybody that, everybody that I surround myself with, I consider to be someone crucial in my life. And anyone who isn't crucial in my life, I try to, I try to get them out because that excess can be a huge detriment to the mind of an entrepreneur. Completely agree. Fantastic. Get rid of the sort of the fluff in your life and surround yourself with people who you want to be the, the most successful people. Exactly. Uh, Dimitri, lastly, what's the best deal you've completed to date? You know, I don't, I don't look at I, – I don't have a, a single deal that I look at that I think that was the best one. We – last year we acquired a property uh, in the industrial space. as a piece of land in downtown Vegas and – we bought it for something like 2.9 million wow. and now we're we're putting it on the market at 7.3 million and it's only been a year or maybe 13 14 months wow i'd say that was a pretty good deal i really liked that one yeah. uh, some people come on the show and and i know personally myself the best deal i've have done was the deals that I lost a little bit of money on or, or learned a lot from because they help, you know, the, the mistakes you make on those deals, you will then go on to not make those mistakes in the future. You know, when it comes to, when it comes to making the mistakes, I've made, I mean, we've, we've all made mistakes and we've all, we've all learned from those mistakes. I, so I, I'm the youngest of three children. That's, that's how my family dynamic was. And I've always learned from the mistakes of my siblings and those that are older than me, those who have been doing what I've been doing, but for significantly longer. And so I, I like to learn from other people's mistakes because then I'll make fewer mistakes. <laughs> That's great. No, I, I love that. That is, that is completely true. And finally, I, I typically ask my non-Australian guests to give me their best crack in an Australian accent. However, you know, as your native tongue is Russian, do you want to give us a few lines in Russian for those listeners out there who do speak Russian? Do you want me to say it in actual Russian? Yeah, for sure. Just do it. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to say, but you know, you'll probably tell us afterwards. Очень приятно иметь этот разговор. Это это было очень классно. What was what, what did you say? I was saying it's very it was a pleasure to to have this talk with you and it was very classy. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'll have to learn that line when I speak to any future uh, Russian investors. Uh, and lastly, Dimitri, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Uh, well, people can reach me at uh, – you know, people can visit our website at cambridgecompanies.us. And if people want to reach us and talk to us, we have, we have a contact page. And we're really all over California and Nevada, so – People will probably see us 
<laughs> see us around anyways. <laughs> but yeah, definitely cambridgecompanies.us. Fantastic. Well, Dimitri, you certainly know your stuff when it comes to structuring financing to purchase real estate deals. And it was great that you broke everything down in layman's terms for our listeners. I do know when I first moved to the United States and started you know, educating myself about U.S. real estate, getting my head around the capital stack was quite challenging. But you know, the way you broke it down into pref equity, into subordinate debt, and really understanding how your company mitigates the risk and uses all equity to purchase deals. And, and, and I love what you said about the difference in the numbers is really between 3 to 5% in IRR, given if you use debt or you use 100% equity. It's absolutely incredible. And I would love to see some of those numbers in pencil them out because I'm a numbers guy myself. But thanks, mate, for dropping by and chatting with us. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, a great insight into understanding the differences between debt and equity and how to structure it in different ways to help mitigate risk against economic fluctuations in the market. If you're an international investor who is interested in retail investment opportunities or in any real estate investment opportunities here in the U.S. and you're wanting to avoid using conventional financing, shoot Dimitri an email. I'm sure he and his team will be more than happy to answer any of your questions. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's show with our conversation with Dimitri and any links we mentioned on today's show. As always, a summary of a conversation will go up online uh, at my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge as that's what we're all about here on the show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. To continue the conversation with me, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter by searching either Reed Goosens or RSM Property Group. And remember to leave a five-star iTunes review below as we really would appreciate it as it helps us grow our community of eager international investors wanting to invest here in the United States. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.